Welcome to Love, Honor, and Asperger's, a podcast for partners in autistic or narcissistic relationships. Join author April Anderson and her guests as they delve into their personal experiences and offer their insight. With wisdom and wit, this podcast will provide listeners with invaluable guidance, unwavering support, and compelling real-life stories. Ready? Let's dive in. Hello, my Cassandra brothers and sisters. Welcome to today's program of Love, Honor, and Asperger's podcast. My guest today is Cheryl Nye, N-Y-E, Cheryl Nye. Cheryl is a licensed psychologist and author of the recently published book, Taming Autism. Cheryl has served children with autism and other disabilities for more than 35 years, primarily in the public schools. She founded and now serves as executive director of the Child Stress Center. Her previous speaking engagements include the National Autism Conference, the International ADHD Conference, and at the Convention for the International Association of Behavioral Analysts. Cheryl critiques research articles for the world-renowned Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. Cheryl is passionate about raising awareness regarding the devastating impact of stress on those with autism. The findings from her research open new frontiers in the treatment and diagnosis of this disorder. Her book is based on over 1,200 research studies and eight years of relentless work dedicated to its completion. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, April. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be a guest and anxious to share the information that uh, I've gained over the years working with adults and children, both with autism, and also to delve into the particular effects that having a relationship with someone who has autism, involving a caretaker role or a spousal partner role, and how that impacts the lives of those who are living and caring for someone with the disorder. Well, we certainly need that, I can tell you. Now, there was a beginning to all this, and um, Cheryl and I were discussing before the show, when did she really focus on stress? And Was it an accident or by chance, or how did it happen? So the first chapter of her book, chapter one, is entitled, What Happened? And I thought, I think it's very moving, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It was the close of the fourth session when my life changed. A boy who stood shoulder height and whose head was covered with dusty brown hair tugged at my elbow. He looked up and said, lady, when I do Tai Chi, I don't feel crazy. His crystal blue eyes locked with mine and I knew something remarkable had just happened. I was baffled and could make no sense of this child's proclamation. As a psychologist, I take pride in unscrambling messages by reading facial expressions, inspecting context clues, and searching for motives, but I was flabbergasted. What on earth had he just experienced? Why had he felt compared to share this unsolicited comment? His words uprooted my professional career and set it on a new path for the next decade. So that's the interesting first chapter, and the rest of the book gets even more interesting. 
But that was how, if you can imagine being a psychologist, working with children, I worked with children. That was my past life, childcare centers. And I've been moved, you know, just astounded, moved to tears. You know, children teach you a lot and give you all kinds of wonderful experiences. But can you imagine having a little child say what I just read, that an autistic child? And so that started you on a new direction. Is that right, Cheryl? Yeah, I think the a little bit of the history in terms of how I got to that point with that child is also rather mind-boggling because we enter into experiences and relationships and we really don't know where they're going to end up. And I started with the practice of Tai Chi, which is, it's basically a slow motion meditation. I'm not one much for sitting and doing yoga. I don't sit well. And so I wanted to do something different. And, and something to transition me from the time my daughter left home and I had an empty nest to something new that might preoccupy me. And also, who knew? I really didn't even know what it was, quite frankly. So I started in the Tai Chi program. It was extremely difficult. I swore I would never quit anything again because it was difficult. I kept going. And I, after a while, I started to notice something really strange happening to me. I found and my husband also made note that I was a better planner, that suddenly I had put gasoline in the car <laughs> instead of waiting for the e-light to come on, that I was on time or like 10 minutes early for an appointment rather than rushing in like at two or three minutes afterward. And I thought, whoa, you know, what is going on with me and this Tai Chi thing? So I was curious, of course, working with children, a variety of children with disabilities at that time, including ADHD and Tourette syndrome, as well as autism. I was curious what impact it might have on them. So I put together a program and it was it was really a challenge for me because I had never done anything quite like this. And I was going to bring, oh, eight boys into a room and I was, I had to occupy them for one hour and I was going to do these slow motion movements with them. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I was actually freaking out on how to proceed. And I had at least had the foresight to bring someone in to help me, but they took to it like ducks to water. Wow. And second week that the one boy looked up to me and made the comment. Mm -hmm. It was surprising that they continued to attend this slow motion meditative exercise program. Their um, moms were required to bring the children to school and they had to be there. I believe it was like 730 in order to be done before school started. And the attendance was over 90%. So I really wasn't sure what was going on, and I became very enthusiastic after what he said to me. Then nothing much happened after that, and I continued with the program for eight weeks. Then it was uh, near the end, and I was like getting bored. And I thought, you know, this really, whatever that was, he said it was just some kind of weird thing. I don't know what it mm -hmm. was. So I decided that I had done a series of tests with the parents and the classroom teachers, as well as I did ongoing testing of the children while after the program, their perception of what was going on. And 
so I decided to bring in the parents after I was done. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that I had the fortitude to keep going one more step because the parents came in and what they had to say to me was shocking. They were explaining to me different things that had occurred with their children, including the one thing that stands out in my mind in particular is that one of the children had Tourette syndrome. And the mother told me that this little boy stopped having tics. Wow. And I was like, okay, lady, you know, I this is pretty hard to believe. And she said, no, I'm serious. He was able to come off of his medication and mm. he is no longer ticking. And she said, and it's all since you started with this Tai Chi Absolutely stuff. Absolutely amazing. I was like, okay, fine. So anyhow, I also had a couple of moms come in and say that they got along better with the kids in the classroom and that the one little boy had actually asked her to go to the mother-son dance or mother-student dance. (laughs) Yeah. And when they got to the dance, he danced with her and asked other mothers to dance. She said it was like transformative. She didn't even know who she was dealing with. That is so cute. Oh my goodness. And it, it just one little boy that I had done in a later study, his mother said to me, you know, Andrew, and I don't know if that, that wasn't his real name, but Andrew, for example, said, I've never been, I asked the children in the beginning about their friends. And he said, I don't have any friends. Wow. And the mother pulled me aside and she was in tears. And she said, you know, I can't have a birthday party for him other than the relatives because there are no children from school that he interacts with. He mm-hmm. doesn't have these friends. Well, lo and behold, later on, unbeknownst to me, she has a birthday party with the kids that are in the group. They go to his home. They're there for hours on end. Oh Everybody word. shows up. They have this big birthday party with wow. friends and like just, it was incredible. And I thought, you know, there were just so many things. And I went back and I, I finished the psychological testing with the parents. And I found that the results, the clinical results matched what the parents were saying were similar wow. in that, you know, the different factors like interaction with others, clinical factors dramatically improved. They got better according to this comprehensive battery of tests. So I had never, you know, I've been working with kids with disabilities for 25, 30 years. And I've been working with parents as well in meetings and other school personnel, sure. teachers. Never had I seen such improvements or like excitement on the half yes. of the Oh parents, my gosh, it must, it must have been exciting. Uh, yeah, they really, I'd never seen it before, quite frankly. I'd been in those meetings and the meetings are usually pretty dry and the results and things, they like we did a lot of behavioral programming and mm-hmm. stuff. And that would give us some short-term results oftentimes, but then it would go away. Right. And so, you know, I really had grown kind of disillusioned with the behavioral interventions. They were hard to put in place. Mm-hmm. They were hard to follow up. The parents would get overwhelmed with keeping charts and the teachers, they had, they'd say to me, I, I got other kids in this classroom. I can't quite do it. When I saw this, it was like so completely different. And I got good feedback from the teachers as well. 
And then one of the teachers said, I didn't really notice. She says, I like you and everything, but I didn't really notice anything different oh, about geez. Charlie or whatever, right? And so, but that's following summer, which was like six months later, this teacher comes bolting across the auditorium where I was there for a choral presentation. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm so glad I met up with you. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I'm telling you, I told you I didn't see any difference. She said, but once the boy stopped going to the Tai Chi oh. program, she said, then I noticed. Then wow. I saw the change. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, by this time, it was late in my career and I was kind of on the border of what I was going to do, whether I was going to continue doing the work I was doing, which was primarily evaluations, or whether or not I was going to retire. Well, I was told by the administration that there was no room in my schedule to do this program Mm. and that I had to go back to testing kids and end the program. Because I had appealed to them to continue. And they said, that just cannot be. So that was discouraging. And the parents were really upset. So I talked it over. And we made a decision that I retire. And by that time, I was so baffled by what had happened. I was just ready to start a new phase in my life. And I was really curious and going to try to find out what changed in that auditorium during those eight weeks and was confirmed to change in the second study that I did with another group of children with autism. And I don't think I had anyone with Tourette syndrome in the second group, just in the first group. But I was hell-bent, as it were, to find out if I possibly could what had happened with that intervention. Well, is that what prompted you to write your book, Taming Autism? Had you had that idea at that time or or not? Not really. I started to do the research and the research grew over time. And as it compounded, it became, it was like overwhelming. All the different studies that I was reading and- 1,200. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. My house, like if you would come into my home, it looked like it snowed in there. (laughs) Because all of these white research papers covered every bit of my furniture. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so I was writing to journals and they were saying, this is too complicated. This is not traditional research where you focus in narrow-mindedly on one particular topic and then you're done with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, a to me, it was an important distinction in terms of how this all turned out. Because I think the reason that the program that was run was so successful was that it was expansive. Mm -hmm. It was not about just one little thing like, why did the mice jump over the cables after it eaten three cubes of sugar versus two cubes of sugar? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So essentially what I did was put together these 1,200 or so studies that I had researched and condense them into a book. So that's how the actual physical book came about. Right. You know what? First off, it's a really great book to read. You know, I, when you talk so much about stress, and of course, we're talking, you know, most of the, on my podcast, we're talking about being married 
or having a spouse or relationship with someone with autism and how stressed we get. It's a terrible thing to be have chronic stress. But but the interesting thing to me, and I've read a lot about it since I was in that situation. But I what I like in particular in your book is how you, if anybody wants to really go deep into stress and the brain. And I know everybody here is fight or flight and rest and digest. That's about as deep as half of, you know, we hear. But Mm -hmm. in your book, you talk about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, what it does to the brain, how. And so I think that's a really uh, plus, you know, to read that. It's technical, but you can still understand it. And the other thing I thought was really interesting about the stress, and we're talking about adults too, is that how you said children, autistic children, will be stressed by things that maybe non-autistic children won't bother non-autistic or you will call neurotypical children. But then other things that will stress a non-autistic kid will not stress an autistic. Am I making sense? You know, it's not Mm -hmm. always the same. And I found that with like my ex-husband. I mean, the things that you would think would make him just a freak, well, melt down, get upset, you know, things that would like I would get upset about, you know, it could be traffic or I don't even know the things that, you know, a bill came into it. it never bothered him, but something else, like, I don't even know, something just different would make him go into a frenzy. So it was sort of the same. I read that in your book and I thought that was interesting. You had you said quite a bit about that. If you remember, Cheryl, how kids that are not autistic can handle certain things and autistic kids yeah. and it's vice versa. Do you know what I'm saying? I think there's quite a bit there, but one of the important points that I'd like to make is that my work specifically was directed and involved children, and mm-hmm. that's my expertise right. over the years. However, they're really the information that you find in the book is important for adults as well as children. Right. I think so. Yeah. It's not like stress really doesn't change in one sense over as we grow, you know, as you get older, you experience chemically. We react to stress the same way when we're 60 as when we're six. Mm -hmm. So what does change is the source of the stress, the different stressors, as we refer to them. Those are the Mm -hmm. things that, you know, what stresses us out. What stresses out a six-year-old may not stress out a 60-year-old. But to get back to your point on what stresses out those children with autism or individuals with autism. Again, just assume that if I say kids, you can apply most of everything I'm saying to adults, that the stressors for autism are different than the stressors for non-autism. Right. Most people know neurotypical. Do you use that term? Yes. Neurotypical. And so neurotypical individuals respond to different stressors. One of the things that's important, I think, to recognize in dealing with individuals that have autism is that they react to stressors that are typically associated with the disorder. So it's common to say that individuals with autism have difficulty with social relationships Mm -hmm. and that they have difficulty with sensory issues. All right. Now, Not coincidentally, the issues that individuals with autism have with sensory are that they are overstimulated by sensory input, the things around them that, you know, are disturbing to us, perhaps, 
but they really are exponentially more so than normally occurs. So for example, if somebody takes a light bulb or a flashlight and flashes it in front of your eyes, you're going to likely like, you know, pull away or put your hand up and it's going to be slightly mm-hmm. stressful to you. Right. But that light with a child with autism is going to be far more disconcerting, upsetting, stressful for them than for you. I get it. And this I found absolutely fascinating when I uncovered it in one of the studies. Children, individuals with autism do not get used to things. So the stress that we put up with, and finally, it just sort of goes away, that noise that you hear, you know, in the background, you hear it and it's like, oh, what's that noise? What's that noise? I hear it, you know. But then after a while, you know, you're just back to watching TV and you don't pay much attention to it. Because we have the ability to tease out that noise. We get used to it and we no longer attend to it. Those with autism do not habituate. They do not get used to the sensory stimulation that's coming in. Exactly. So can you imagine how (laughs) terribly stressful that could be? I can't imagine. I love that part you wrote about the habituate. I read that twice just recently. Well, it's got to be terrible. Can I just say my? I said to my son, who goes to football games with my ex former husband, and I said, and I know he doesn't like noise. And I said, how does he stand the noise? A football game is super noisy. I mean, noisy, screaming, mm-hmm. yelling, cheering, yes. bands. And he said, well, Dad will put his hands over his ears sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Still bothers him. Yep. And if you see, like a kid, I can remember a kid. I was at a volleyball game, and his mother was there with her son. And he had to put his hands over his ears, mm-hmm. you know, when the noise got loud and he appeared to be very uncomfortable. Mm. So sensory issues that are particularly occurring in those with autism cause more stress. So the second issue that is really broad is the social interactions mm-hmm. and they have problems. Individuals with autism have problems in terms of interacting with others. And that, it's kind of like it makes things worse. You know, they don't have, A, they don't have the same resources that others do Mm -hmm. to calm them. You know, like if we get upset, somebody might give us a hug and kind of nurture and hold us, and that would feel calming. Not only may it not be calming to somebody with autism, Mm -hmm. it can like really upset them, make them even, you know, like stay away from me. That's sort of social interaction, that closeness, that intimacy. And I have to say, I know we're doing the children thing, but I have to say it took me about, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years of marriage to realize that when I hugged my husband, he stiffened up. He didn't like it. He did not like a hug. I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, this was so beyond anything I knew anything about back then. I mean, I'm, yep. you know, in my seventies, I was like 30 or something. And I had no idea about adult autism or Asperger or anything. And I just, I was imagining things. Then I finally, it dawned on me, if I hugged him, he just, I guess he didn't want to say, get away, <laughs> you know, but he just, oh, he just stiffened up. Yep. And you know, what did you say? Like, you didn't want to think that you were imagining things or. Yeah. Well, you and- know, you wonder, I just had to think I can't be. I must be misreading this or I never, you knew something was probably wrong or I did, but I just couldn't compute it. I mean, I just, it wasn't so bad that he would say, don't hug me. Right. But he would never on his own hug me. 
When we were first married, I put my arm around him. We're newlyweds. We watched TV. He was in the Navy. And you think when you're newlyweds, you're supposed to kind of like be close at least the first year. And uh, I would put my arm around him sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that he is not reciprocating any of that. But anyway, yeah, it's a touch with him. Well, why it didn't dawn on you likely is because especially in relationships with males. I recently read that because our society accepts maleness as distant and less hands-on, that individuals have a tendency to disbelieve any concerns or complaints that a wife who's married to someone with autism is, you know, like, well, yeah, he's just being a guy. No, this goes beyond just being a guy, but it's mm-hmm. hard to distinguish. It's hard to articulate what you're saying unless you come from the perspective of this does not seem like healthy behavior. <laughs> you know, if something's wrong, you know, our kid's in the hospital and we're both really, you know, this is a serious business and I come to you for a hug, we should be hugging each other. That would be normal. Mm-hmm. but that's not likely to happen with someone who has. Well, I mean, you know, I think I knew deep down, I knew I was missing something. It's just that was it enough to like, you know, kick the man out, get the, you know, the, I got the kids. You knew something was wrong, but it was just, I can't call it hidden. Insidious. Yeah, it's a it's shame. It's there, but it's kind of like almost, well, secret is not a good word, but it's there and it's doing its thing, but it's not in your face. Now, right, with younger it's not children, in your face. You're still functioning your life, you know, and you're going to work and you're taking care of kids and and right. all that. But what they do as children, you know, with and how about this? I don't know if this is part of this interview, but so many of the women that are married to men on the spectrum describe their husbands as have different ages. Like you have your, he can be the two-year-old one day, the five-year-old one day. They act like children a lot. I mean, seriously. And then maybe an adult another day. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know if you're going to get the little kid still, you know, because you basically uh-huh. parented your spouse a lot. Well, that's an interesting point and kind of a transition to talking about that parenting your spouse or parenting as caregivers right. of someone who has autism. Right. It is the research is somewhat alarming to me. And one of the reasons that I'm so as much as I don't want to sell books, I don't want to be a bookseller, but I really believe it's important that people know this information. Mm-hmm, I do too. Um, and individuals who deal directly with the stressors of someone who has autism, first of all, and I'll see if I can hold on to that thought, if you have stress and you are near somebody that doesn't have stress, Stress is contagious. Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly. The research supports it. So in other words, they're looking at heart rate variability and cortisol Mm. levels, being around somebody who has stress. So now, not only are you dealing with a stressful set of circumstances in an individual, but you also are experiencing the stress by being near them. Right. So this compounds matters and it's caretakers really take a hit when addressing and living with and treating and caring for someone with autism. Mm -hmm. The one particular statistic that I find very alarming is the caretakers of those with autism will, these are mothers that in particular in this study, will die on average 
10 years before women who have not cared for a child. That, that, is, that is a disturbing figure there, I'll tell you. 10 years, isn't that's a decade. You know? Ideally, in any type of program, you know, parents, mothers, who's ever mm-hmm. involved in this relationship, get help. Yeah, get help. Get help for themselves. And the reasons, and maybe we can explore that a little bit, that this is so important to recognize and how I think we talked about earlier, how I came about with the stress issues is Tai Chi is known to reduce stress. Similar to if you think of yoga, Mm -hmm. okay, very similarly. So that led me to think, all right, well, maybe, you know, what happened with these kids was possibly reducing their stress. You know, I had to look at what was the obvious cause. And as there was very little research in the beginning, but as I continued to explore and once the neuroscientists got involved, then I was able to see and learn how stress changes the brain. It's scary. (laughs) Really, it is. It is. And what happens inside the brain is also remarkable. Mm So. Essentially, the stress hormones, you know, you've heard of cortisol and adrenaline get pumping when you're under stress. And that can be being afraid of the bear or being afraid of passing a final, not passing a final exam or be afraid of that the checkbook's not going to balance and, you know, you're going to bounce a check. Right. So the stress causes the same reactions in the brain, regardless of the source. Right. That's so interesting. Took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. So the stress hormones start circulating and our bodies are equipped in the brain to shut it off. Mm -hmm. All right. That's, you know, that's enough. Well, unfortunately, the stress that's generated in those with autism is so much greater Mm -hmm. than what is generated normally. We talked a little bit earlier about some of the causes, but those same stressors impact individuals with or without autism, but because there are so many more stress hormones going on in those with autism, then the brain changes more dramatically. It's a terrible thing. Well, here you have a brain that is being bombarded by these stress hormones. Mm Mm-hmm. And the different parts of the brain start actually physically changing. Jeez. I mean, I read a little more of that last night, even though I've read your book, you know, fully through and it's disturbing, but it's really interesting. So I say that we right now will going to end on telling people more about how to get your book and that they should look at it because whatever Cheryl's saying is just the tip of the iceberg, really, of what she's written. It's called Taming Autism. And it's on, you can get it wherever you get books, right? Yeah, Amazon. Amazon. Cheryl, you want to tell people about your website and where people can find you? Yes. If you look under tamingautism.com, you will get to my website. And there's a lot of information on there. And I do really would encourage people who have autistic individuals in their lives to look at what an impact it's having on themselves. 
you know, kind of like I mentioned in the book, sort of like the stewardess, used to be a stewardess, saying, put the mask on first so that you can then help. You need to, as wives, as daughters, as mothers, whatever, you need to realize that these stress hormones are flowing through your brains and they're changing your brains in autism. Mm -hmm. They change the brains in a way that cause symptoms to increase. So you really want to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get yourself some help, pamper yourself, baby yourself, you know, whatever. There are multitudes of ways that you can reduce stress. And I would suggest that you you know start seeking out some of the things, find something you like to do and then do it. That's great advice, Cheryl. And not start downing a, what, a bottle of wine and a sweater every night or something or with tranquilizers or antidepressants or whatever to, you know, find a healthy way to, to get rid of the stress. Um, well, a bottle of wine may feel good, but unfortunately <laughs> it's short term and there are other potential consequences with it. Exactly. So. Right. I know, but people have a hard time with it. So, all right. So how about, is there any place else, excuse me, to, that you can be found besides the website? Did you say you're on Instagram or anything like that? I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. LinkedIn. Yes. So it's, make sure everybody looks up Cheryl Nye, N-Y-E, so you got an unusual last name there. And the book's called Taming Autism. I appreciate you coming on, Cheryl. And Cheryl has so much in her brain, that, to speaking of brains, <laughs> that us lay she, people, I, re- I had to remind her, she's talking to lay people today. She's not giving one of her speeches. But anyway, I think it was really very interesting. I appreciate you coming on, Cheryl. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please review, subscribe, and tell a friend. My website is www.aprilanderson.net. Remember to trust yourself, be strong, and don't let them get you.